Jesus reigns, hallelujah. A perfect God, the one true God, Jesus the man, Jesus God reigns, which means the work had been finished. He died on the cross. He said, it is finished. He, he was buried in a tomb. Then he rose from the dead and he spent time with hundreds of his disciples. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father and he reigns at the right hand of the Father. He is there. He is interceding and advocating for you. That means the God who loves you, has bought you, secured you, is with you always to the end of the age as he promised. And so we come together on Sunday and we lift our hands and we sing a song where it feels like, man, everything else disappears. Perspective comes in. Our eyes are on the summit. No Netflix movie or show, no YouTube video, nothing, no play, nothing on this world can get our attention and well up in our hearts the presence of God and what we should genuinely be excited about more than the fact that Jesus, our God, reigns. Amen. I love you, brothers and sisters, and it is so good to sing with you. Let us never forget this. We come together to lift high the name of Jesus and exalt him. And we want others to see the hope that is in this, this true message, this gospel. So let's do this. Let's go to our God who is holy, who we have no business coming to boldly, but we can because Jesus has tore the veil in two and we have access. So let's take advantage of that access and go to him and pray right now. Heavenly Father, God, every single one of us are unworthy to be before you right now. We have a long list of sins, long list of failures, a currently a body that is dying because of sin, currently sins that we still struggle over, currently desires that we should not have, that we fight against every day, and currently a long list of failures still piling up. And the accuser, the devil, is very much alive. His time is short. He knows it. So he is always breathing accusations against us. Trying very much to make your children think that you do not love them. So, Father, I pray that you would remind us of your grace and mercy that's new every morning. You would help us to see that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you would motivate us to live holy as you are holy, not to make you love us more, but because you love us, we're compelled by that love to give back to you what you deserve. And now because of the Holy Spirit, have the ability to say no to sin and to live for you. Because if we're worth dying for, you are worth living for. So Father, be with us this morning as we open your word. Show us what you have for us and mold us one step closer into the image of your son. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, you can be seated. Kids, enjoy your time away. And everyone else, take your Bibles. I really, I want you to have your Bibles, whether, whether you have it in your hand or you have it on your phone. We're going to be walking through a good amount of verses today, so I want you to follow along with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Our series empowered. We have put, we've put the outline to these three chapters in the series titled, and go and check it. See if, see if, it, see if it, uh, it matches up. Empowered, chapter 12, by the Spirit. It is the Spirit who manifests Himself in His people, and He gives individually as He will to who he wants to, when he wants to, the gifts that he's going to use for the benefit of the church. Empowered by the Spirit, not in ourselves, by the Spirit. And then 13, through love, without love, we are nothing. No gift or no effort that would be in the name of Jesus is even worth it if love is not present, the love of God is not present in our heart. So by the Spirit, through love, and then chapter 14 is the interesting one. It says, for others, or we have said for others as the kind of the translation of what we're trying to get out here. What's our point we're trying to make from chapter 14? This idea that God wants to manifest himself in you through love to the benefit of others. And you might say, hey, when I look at 14, 
It seems like he uses the word tongues and prophecy a lot. Isn't that what that chapter is about? Well, this is what we're going to focus on to make the point that our gifts are used for others. So, chapter 14, before we get into it, I want to direct your eyes to the screen. You know, one of our main priorities as a church is to build each other up. You can find this all through the New Testament this theme of edifying one another, being built up, growing. One of our pillars is spiritual growth. The elders have the unique responsibility to feed you and the desire to see you be mature in Christ. This is the goal of even God himself. He has saved you for salvation, but saved you also to be conformed to the image of his son, to mature, to become Jesus on earth so you can make the same impact on earth that he did because others are lost and dying. One of our main priorities is to build one another up. That growth or building process can be easily stunted. And I would say this, even with sincere intentions. Corinth and many churches today misapplied and misapply this gift of tongues. And it gets this special attention, attention in 14 because the Corinthians were the example of those who were using this gift in a way it was not meant to be used. And it was stunting the growth of the church to the detriment of growth. What, Jasper, you mean that a gift that is from the Holy Spirit could be used selfishly and it not help the church but grow the church? We know that's true. And it's not just the gift of tongues. This is, a true, this is a truth for all gifts. However the Spirit wants to use you or however He manifests Himself in you, how you use that gift and why you use that gift is very important. And for the Corinthians, tongues is the example of the gift that was showing that they were not of the Holy Spirit. They were misinformed about spiritual things, thought they were doing things God's way, but they were not. So we're going to answer some questions today. So buckle up. we got 19 verses to go through, but I want to go ahead and show you the questions I want us to answer or the passage will answer for us. Why did unintelligible speech stunt their growth? We're going to answer that first. Then this, why were they getting this wrong to begin with? There's a good reminder there. Then question three, what then is the gift of tongues for? Get that elucidation. Verse 4, what were the consequences of this misapplied gift for the Corinthians? And then the final question is this, why should prophecy be the eager desire of the church? So, so look at, verse, look at um, the chapter with me. I want to draw your attention to a few things to give us some context. Look at verse 12 real quick. And we're going to work through this, but I want, you just, I want to get your mind on it. Verse 12 is kind of like the theme verse. Verse 12 says this, so with yourself, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Look at verse 19 now. This is Paul speaking. Here's a very interesting context I want to give you. Verse 19, nevertheless, in church. The context that Paul is talking is in the context of church. So remember that. When we answer these questions, we're talking about this gift being used in the context of church, the one another gathering. And then look back now up at verse 1 of chapter 14. Paul says this, what he wants us to do overall. Remember, pursue love. Pursue love. You, you full send, as Todd showed us last week, that love is the number one energy effort, the number one thing that we're all after, and the number one thing we can all attain and actually use because we can't all attain and all use the same gift because they're spread out and used, and not everyone has the same gift. So the one thing we can all get that we must all get is to constantly pursue love. And then he, what does he say? Eagerly desire the things of the Spirit, especially that you would prophesy so here's the context we're in. He's comparing the higher gift, the greater gift, the gift that he wants the whole church to have an eager desire for, prophecy, and he's comparing it to the gift of tongues that they 
had an eager desire for over everything else, and that eager desire was misplaced. And so he's going to he's going to put the right priority of things into motion here. First love, then desire the things of the Spirit, but make sure that you're desiring the first better things of the Spirit to begin with. So a few questions we're going to answer as we work through it, and we're going to be starting in verse 6. Okay, you ready? You guys with me? Got your Bibles ready? The first question is this. Why did unintelligible speech stunt their growth? And here's the answer. And then I'm going to show you the verses that reveal this answer. The answer is this, because no one can build or be built by unintelligible speech. No one can build or be built by unintelligible speech. Look at verse 6. Now, brothers, Paul's talking. If I come to you speaking in tongues, how, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Notice this, not even Paul could build with an unintelligible language. It's important that he says that because he's saying, even if I, the apostle, I come to you acting like the way you're acting with unintelligible speech in the context of church, not even I will be able to benefit you with it unless with the tongue I bring an understanding. I bring a revelation, I bring a prophecy, I bring a teaching. Not even Paul could build with an unintelligible language. But look what he says next. He continues to make the point with some more rhetorical questions. Verse 7, if even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And then he says this, verse 8, and if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? Even lifeless instruments have to give intelligible sounds in order to benefit others. Okay, let's stop right there. Maybe most of us are thinking, this is pretty obvious. Why are we going through this? Well, in the context of the Spirit showing up in you in a miraculous way, it's not as simple as just get it right. You see, God was manifesting Himself through people, and they were able to miraculously speak in a language that they did not know. How awesome would that be? To the point where everyone in the church wanted that gift. Everyone wanted it. And everyone wanted to try to do it. And the implication here is everyone was trying to always, when they come together, all speak in unintelligible speech. And Paul is trying to help them see, yes, you are experiencing a very wonderful, miraculous thing, but I need to help bring you back to the place of what, what God is trying to do what he wants and how he wants to do things. It's important that we do things his way. So he's using this point about these instruments. Even lifeless instruments give distinct sounds. There was one point when we were in the music, I mean, for like half a millisecond, Corey hit like a, a wrong note and immediately noticed it. You felt it. You sensed it. It was off. It didn't match the melody. Corey, I love you. Sorry. He, he knows it too. He's probably like, no one noticed that. I did because it was not the right sound. Paul's using some rhetorical questions. He's trying to help them get the point here. He's being very gentle with them. Now remember this, the book of First Corinthians is a book of rebuke. A book of rebuke. From the very beginning, all the way to chapter 14. And then in 15, he starts to bring out uh, some exhortation and some encouragement to solidify the book with it. But from like chapter 1 all the way up to 14, it's nothing but rebuke. And so he's coming to them in a very fatherly way to set straight, like, man, you are not following the Spirit like you think you are. And he wanted to inform them of that. We're going to see a few more, reiterate that as we go on. So no one, can ever be build, no one can ever build or be built by unintelligible speech in the context of the church. Even lifeless instruments have to give distinct sounds. And he uses the idea of even a bugle in battle. Like you, the soldiers know when it's time to charge and when it's time to retreat. But if the bugle isn't giving the right sound, they won't be able to respond appropriately to it. This is a rhetorical type of question. Of course, they get the idea here. 
Look at verse 10 then, what he says. So then he brings it back to them and applies it personally to them in verse 10. He says this, therefore, he says, verse, start in verse 9 with me. So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? Again, another rhetorical question. The, the answer is obvious. No one can benefit from that. And then he says this, For you will be speaking into the air, which is just a, a way of saying it will be useless. No one benefits. Useless. And then he says this in verse 10, Unintelligible voices make us barbarian, bar- barbarians to one another. He says there are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. Now, now Paul is driving this home. He asks a rhetorical question. If I come to you, I can't even benefit you. Even lifeless instruments can't benefit you. And then he brings it back to them and he applies it. So with yourselves, if you speak in an unintelligible way with you, with your brothers and sisters, no one's going to be able to... Be, and guess what? You, here's what you actually become. You become a foreigner, or more specifically, the word that he's using is barbarian to one another, which would have been like, for them, that would have been like very triggering. Like, oh, bar, not a good thing to be a barbarian to one another. And in the context of the church, this is not good because the whole point of the church is that God brings those who are near and who are far off together and he makes people family who have no business being family to one another in the context of the world. And God bridges languages and cultures and opinions and ways of living life and, and foods that we like and dislike. He bridges all of that, cuts through all of that, and through Jesus brings us together so we are no longer barbarians and foreigners to one another. So when Paul's revealing what an unintelligible speech does in the context of the church, it goes backwards. Now look at verse 12. I'm going to have this one in gold on the screen. Why? Because this is like like the, the ding ding verse. He says this so So he's bringing it home. So, with yourselves, or he says this, so with yourselves since you are eager. You see, Paul knows he's not having to, he's not having to convince them to be eager for spiritual things. He says in verse 12, that's a good thing. I mean, chapter 12, that's a good thing. He says in verse 1 of 14, that's a good thing. Eagerly desire. And what are they desiring? I want to I want to experience the Holy Spirit. That's what it is. Eagerly desire the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Word manifest is, has some bad connotations today. If, you're, if you know anything about some of the heretical New Age type of Christian, Christian hijacking that's going on, the word manifest isn't a good thing. In the context of what just the word means, it's just the Spirit showing up in your life, what he's talking about here. Since you're eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, what does he say here? He's taking what they already have, an eagerness, but then he wants to direct it the right way. Since you're eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, do this. Strive. Put your energy and your effort into doing what? Excelling in, doing good at the things that will build up the church. That's where your energy goes. But if unintelligible speech is the eager Desire. If the gifts of the tongues misapplied is the eager desire, what does it do? The church's eager energy is wasted. Well, how do you know it's wasted? He just said you're speaking into the air. You are putting the eager energy and the little time we have together and the times we have together eagerly on something that's going to waste the energy that God wants put into the things that will build one another up. So why unintelligible speech stunts the growth? We're seeing it so far, but Paul's not done. He's going to continue to bring even more points home. He says this in verse 13 through 15. He says, Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. And then he says, What am I to do? 
I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. An unintelligible language deprives even the speaker of benefit. Look what he's saying here. He further goes on to now take his attention to talk directly to the person who would be using the gift of tongues. And he says to them, listen, if you're praying in a language that not even you can understand, only part of you benefits from that. Yes, as miraculous as it is, of course the heart and the, 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 the spirit of the person is going to enjoy that, benefit from it. But he says this, his mind is unfruitful. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. So now imagine you're the Corinthians. Imagine everyone's trying to speak in tongues. Only some of them have the genuine gift of it, but everyone's trying to, and then there's no intelligible language being said in the context of the church. No one's benefiting. And now Paul's trying to say, if you're going to strive to do a gift that you can't do, or even if you can do, then strive to prophesy. We're going to see that a little bit later. But if you can speak in tongues, if someone can speak in another language, even if you don't understand the language, how can you benefit from it as well as what he's saying. Only part of you benefits. Therefore, one who speaks in tongues should pray that he may interpret. And then he says, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Why is he using, uh, why is he breaking it down like this? Talking about the spirit of the person and the mind of the person. Well, one, you have to go back to 1 Corinthians 2, where Paul says he's going to speak to them as children. He's going to speak to them as carnal people, as people who are still in the flesh. He says, I actually can't come to you and speak to you as spiritual people. So right off the bat, right at the beginning of the book, he, he, he says that you are not able to handle the type of spiritual uh, understanding that I would like to bring to you. I have to come to you and talk to you in a carnal way. And in the day that they're living in, Gnosticism was pervading the pagan rituals of the time were pervading and entering into their hearts and into their mind, and they were struggling to live according to the philosophy and the teaching of the paganism of the day, Gnosticism being the main idea. Gnosticism being this, that there is this transcendent experience that you can have that has to transcend the, the mind of the person, the physical part of the person is not able to understand the spiritual parts, and so there's this ecstatic, sensual, uh, ecstasy-like experience that the people wanted to have, and that was a sign that they were close with God. And so the temple prostitutes would come down at night. The men were joining themselves to prostitutes to experience something that would, by the pagan laws of the time, get them close to God through the experience of the flesh. And that the mind was not good. You could bypass the mind you can't understand spiritual things with the mind, so you have to experience them with the Spirit. So Paul begins to speak to them in the language that they can understand. But the Spirit and mind, when it comes to being a Christian, should always be connected. Never, never devoid of each other. Always connected. And that's what Paul says, what am I to do? If my spirit benefits and my mind doesn't, I can't understand. He says, what am I to do? As if this is not good, not complete, what must I do? Well, then you pray for the ability to understand what you're saying. Because both when your spirit, the heart of the person, feels that, and the mind understands it, it is a complete experience. Then you benefit, then the person benefits wholly from that. Paul said, what will I do? I will. And then he gets definitive. Here's what he, he's using himself as an example, and he says multiple times through the book of Corinthians, imitate me, imitate me. He's actually comparing himself to wrong teachers that were coming in, using himself constantly as an example. Not even I can benefit you with an intelligible language. Now, here's, if this were me, it's like he's saying, here's what I would do. I will pray with my spirit but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. So then he brings in another point, though, on top of this. 
the unintelligible language is also depriving others of rejoicing with you. It deprives the individual benefit and it deprives others the benefit of rejoicing with you. He says this in verse 16, otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving? Which, by the way, we say amen today still. It comes from here. This has made its way, this, this agreement, the shout of, of yes, amen, it is true. What I've heard, I agree with, and I rejoice with, amen. He's using the point. How can anyone say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the person is not being built up, and that should matter. And then he says this in verse 18. Now pay attention here. Now Paul's really going to bring in his experience. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Verse 18 through 19. Paul himself didn't desire to do this as they were. Even Paul didn't desire it. And then finally this, verse 19, Unintell- now get what I'm saying, unintelligible speech has no place in the church according to what Paul's saying. He says, I would rather speak five words that you could understand than 10,000. Really the meaning here is uh, unlimited because 10,000 was the extent of their number. An unlimited amount that you could not. Jesus died for your sins. In the context of church, one another benefiting you need to hear and understand the gospel. This is the core of Christianity, is to be able to hear and believe. This is what's at stake. Beautiful feet must be going so people can hear, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so in the context of the church, we come together so we can rejoice over the truth together. And if someone's praying in a tongue, there must be interpretation so we can all benefit from it. The the point's clear. We see what he's saying here. This leads us to a next question, and I think this is the question that Paul knows that they have in their mind because he just spent a lot of verses devaluing a gift that they were all eagerly using in the church. So then the question is this, what in the world then is the the gift of tongues for? I mean, Paul, just one thing after another, just hammering it, admonishing them. Rather in church, I wouldn't even rather speak an unintelligible word at all all using words that people could understand. Okay, okay, I hear you, Paul. So there is, though, this gift of tongues. God is manifesting himself through the Holy Spirit in people to miraculously speak a language they do not know. What in the world is that for? I think he's thinking that. That's why he says this next verse. Brothers, look at verse 20. Do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Then he says in verse 21, In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Verse 22, thus tongues are a a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but believers. Okay, Jasper, you got to unpack that one. Well, let's let's work on this together. I I, I want you to see a few things on the screen. I want to give you the answer, then I want us to talk about it. Before we get to what the the gift of tongues is, I want us to look at verse... 20, and remember why they were getting this wrong in the first place. Why they were getting this wrong in the first place. Spiritual immaturity, and then experts in demon influence. Verse 20, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Turn to 1 Corinthians 3 with me and let's remember how he started out this book. And 
When we say book, we're saying letter. A letter that would have been handwritten, no verses, no chapters, handed in, and then they would have read it in one sitting and addressed directly from Paul to the people. And he says this very soon in the letter. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready for it, for you are still in the flesh. And how did he know that? For where there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not in the flesh and behaving only in a human way. See, the fruit of their life was evidence of the Spirit, not the ecstatic experiences or the things that they were mustering up within the service that seemed spiritual from a worldly standpoint. Paul was able to look at the fruit of their life and say, no, you're not operating in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has not been behind what you're doing. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not... This is a, I want you to remember this because we're going to come back to this. The natural person, meaning the person who does not have the Holy Spirit inside of them, does not accept the things of God or the Spirit of God because they're folly to him. To him, they're foolishness. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spirit, spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And if you go back and read chapter 2, you'll find that it is the Holy Spirit that, that, that is God himself who chooses to reveal spiritual truth to his people. And people who are lost in the darkness cannot understand these things unless the Spirit reveals those things to him. Okay, Keep that in mind as we revert back to 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20. 1 Corinthians 14. So then when he says this, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. They already are because they've already heard him say that they are. Be infants in evil, meaning as it comes to being innocent and and, uh, gullible and unlearned, not an expert you should be an expert in spiritual things, but you should be a novice when it comes to evil things. But we already know that they were an expert when it came to spiritual things based off what Paul said to them in chapter 10 leading up to 12, that they were participating with demons, thinking that they were participating with Christ. But in your thinking, be mature. And then he immediately, in verse 21, takes them to the Old Testament. Why does he do this? It's like he, he knows that there's this question, what then are the gift of tongues for? So he's like, okay, I'm going to remind you. I'm going to send you back to the Old Testament. I'm going to send you to Isaiah 28, and I want you to remember, I want your mind to immediately go back there, and what in the world is going on in Isaiah 28? And he quotes it here in 14. He says, <coughs> excuse me, by people of strange tongues, that seems relevant to the conversation, and by the lips of of foreigners or barbarians, will I speak to this people? God speaking to Israel. And if you go to Isaiah 28, it's specifically Ephraim and Jerusalem. I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. And you see, if you read through Isaiah 28, you see that God is line upon line, precept upon precept. He's been very clear, speaking to them like their children and they still don't get it. Do you see why this is problematic then for Paul when he's saying, I'm having to do the same thing? A sign that I'm having to come to people who are are supposed to be mature, and a sign that I'm having to come to them and speak to them like children, going through every great effort to help them yield to the Spirit and help them understand spiritual things is not a good sign. It is actually a sign of judgment that is coming upon people. Hebrews reiterates this. The author of Hebrews was so concerned for the people in Hebrews 5 and 6 that they were supposed to be teachers themselves, but he was having to come back and teach them the elementary spirits of the world, the elementary things of the world. He was so concerned that they were going to go back and just leave Christ altogether. So, okay, what is, what is Paul doing here? Isaiah 28. Okay, let's go to Acts chapter 2. Let's see the gift of tongues 
at use. Acts chapter 2. What's the context here? Jesus has ascended. He has an he has been, the disciples have been instructed to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. They do not know when it's going to come. The day of Pentecost comes. The day of Pentecost is a day when all the nations were gathered together in one place. All the languages in the surrounding Israel were gathered together in one place. And so you have this scenario where the disciples are around thousands of people, but they're all speaking different languages. And what happens? Something miraculous. An extremely explosive sound gets their attention. Cloven tongues of fire fall on the disciples, and it says that everyone began hearing them speak in their own language, which means the disciples are all speaking, they're teaching, and everyone there who's from a different place in the world is hearing the disciples teach and preach the mighty, mighty, wonderful works of God in their own language. Read verse, starting in verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, right? So big boom, everyone comes in, and it says they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not these all who speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language. And then he shows the actual languages that were being used. Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt's and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Key into verse 13, but others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. So you have this miraculous situation that happened. Miraculous. People are able to hear in a situation that would be pretty problematic. You have the gospel, you're trying to give it to people, but you have this language barrier and they need the gospel of life. The Holy Spirit manifests himself in a, an extremely wonderful way to bridge that gap. What gap? The gap that God created back in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel when the mankind, it says, was under one language. Mankind was under one language. And they had, they had determined in their heart they were going to build a tower to heaven. What is this symbolic of? I can get to God on my own, which makes you think back in Genesis when they were kicked out of the garden and God said, lest they take of the tree of life and eat, he put an angel to guard the way so they could not get to it. Not good for man to reach out his hand and get to heaven on his own. God has been thwarting this throughout all of history because the only way to get to God is through Jesus so that the perfect time would come when Jesus would die on the cross and make the way possible to be connected with God. And so in the Tower of Babel, an act of mercy where God spread the people out over the world, purposely divided their languages. So now through history then, people would not be able to work together in a way to accomplish their evil, prideful schemes of man as quick. But then also later, past Genesis 11, you see God chooses one nation from them, doesn't he? Chooses the nation of Israel through Abraham and he uses these people to bring about his plan, to bring about his son at the right time to save the world. And through the nation of Israel, salvation has come. And we're telling now through the gospel and through Jesus, now the barrier that God put up, he is breaking. He broke the barrier between himself and man. Now he's breaking the barrier between nations to bring them together under, not through the means of man, but through his means of Jesus Christ, his son. And he will even magically pull down the barriers of language. And he used his people to do that. Giving them a gift to be able to speak to people who need to hear the gospel. Okay, Jasper, how do you get that? Well, in the, Think about Paul. He's saying to the Corinthians, in the context of church, I would rather, basically, I'd rather not speak in tongues. Okay, then what in the world is the gift of tongues for? Implication outside of church. For who? And then he says here, a sign to unbelievers. 
Now, now, go to 14 and read with me because there is, a con- there is something that is kind of confusing here. He says this, thus a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. I want you to think about it like this. And this is where we're going to see the consequences of the gift misapplied in the context of church. You're going to see it on the screen. When unintelligible speech is used in the context of church, believers are hurt by it. But what specifically is he talking about here? Let's keep going to the next slide. This first one here. He says this. Believers ended up, and I put it in quotations, benefiting the way unbelievers do in that they're not able to understand, which then you think about Jesus speaking in parables. You think about those who could not understand. You now think about Isaiah 28 where Jesus would speak to them by the lips of strange foreigners. Isaiah 29, they fell into judgment and were ransacked. The sign of uh, uh, unintelligible languages around people is not a good sign. It's a sign of judgment, especially if they can't understand it. So for unbelievers to not be able to understand a message or like for Jesus to speak in parables and Jesus looks to the Father and he says, I pray and I thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise of the world, but you've chosen to reveal them to children. And then he what? Reveals the meaning of the parables to the disciples. In the context of the church, when there's unintelligible speech, it's, it's not good for fellow believers because it's like we're being treated like unbelievers. We're being treated like the people who cannot understand the things of God. It's not good for believers to experience that. That is the experience for those who reject Jesus. They cannot understand the natural man, the things of God, because they're folly to him. And, Jesus, and Paul's like, no, this is the time to come together to speak with understanding so you can know and hear but Paul says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. On his missionary journeys, he's going to all of these different nations, and God is manifesting himself in Paul to be able to speak these different languages so people can hear the gospel. Paul didn't have you know, the, uh, the Google translation. He didn't have any of that. He's using this gift to be able to get it out to people who would hear and believe in their own language. But you have others that will mock and say you're crazy when they hear these things. Now look at these, this next consequence. Verse 23, he then brings it to their situation. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and an outsider or unbeliever enters, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, called into account by all. The secrets of his hearts are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he'll worship God and declare that God is really among you. So believers end up benefiting the way unbelievers do, not in a good way, not able to understand. But then next thing, if an unbeliever or an outsider, someone who, who is unlearned, someone who doesn't know, who, who, who just doesn't know, they don't know what's going on in the con- they just come in, there's this other experience that's negative that will happen. They will conclude that you're out of your minds, you're crazy. But, but it'll be apart from hearing the gospel. And they'll leave, and in the community, you won't be able to make an impact because everyone's so focused on doing their thing that people now are not benefiting from hearing the gospel. Two negative consequences here that Paul wants them to be aware of. You know, when I read verse 23... I was this person in a church. As a teenager, for about four years of my life, I had time spent in a church that was misapplying the gift of tongues. And I found myself as a young person who had come to know Jesus, who was just a baby. I so desperately wanted to know the things of God. And yet I would be in church praying to God that he would not let the people start all speaking in unintelligible speech together because I said, these people are crazy. As a, as a teenager being forced to come out of my seat and come down to the front when I didn't want to, and people forcefully putting their hands on me, shaking me, telling me to speak in tongues, 
is something that's happening in our churches today that's not biblical. It is not good. It's the gift of tongues being misapplied. But you know what? God used that experience to drive me to study the Word because I was so consumed with confusion. I knew I loved Jesus. I knew I wanted to follow Him. I was such a baby, and I wanted to understand the spiritual things of the Lord so badly. I was so confused. To the point where I'm like, I don't even know if I'm going to be in church anymore. And so one day I went home, took my old King James Bible, which I knew nothing about, didn't know what the Old Testament was or New Testament. I prayed, I said, God, do you want me to speak in tongues? What is this? Am I missing something? Am I missing something? What's going on? Please help me. Please help me. I opened my Bible like this. I looked down. You know what I saw? 1 Corinthians 14, the gift of tongues. Couldn't believe it. You want to talk about an experience that blew my mind. And then I began reading And you know what I came to? I came to this verse where it says, will they not say you're out of your mind? I said, yes, that's me. That's me. And then I kept reading in 14. You know what God also said to me through his word? For I am not the author of confusion. And God used that experience then to draw me to 2 Timothy 2.15 that says, study to show yourself approved to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Little boy, uh, high school kid in uh, Clemson, South Carolina who just was saved by God out of his own rebellion and just wanted to understand the things of the Lord and to be in a context where that understanding was being deprived from me was not a good experience. God lays out clearly how he wants this gift to be used and it must be used properly. Now, I know there could be some dissonance here as if, okay, we're not struggling with this but we're going through 14 and using what they were struggling with now as an example for us. We can use our gift in a selfish way too that, that deprives people of things. And I'll tell you this, this experience with me was good because God solidified for me the authority of his word that I must study for myself. I'm here today. I, would not, I do not believe I would be here today with you, one of your pastors, wouldn't have my wife and kids if it wasn't for that experience in that church of just trying to study the Word because God set me on a path of wanting to study and teach others the Bible as a result of that. So the final question. Why then should prophecy be the number one eager desire of the church? Well, look, look how he describes the effect, the fruit of prophecy to both the believers and the outsiders and unbelievers in the context of church. Verse 24. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called into account by all. The secrets of his hearts are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he'll worship God and declare that God is really among you. Prophecy is proclaiming the word of the Lord. Prophecy can involve telling the future. The prophets telling the future. If you go and listen to how the prophets prophesy to the nation of Israel, you see some, you see some uh, key things. The exposure of sin, the call to repentance, and the warning of judgment that's coming. Where does prophecy show up today in that context? In the context of believers who will proclaim the gospel who will go out into a world and say, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The criers in the streets who are saying that something is coming and who will give the good news clearly of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you have sinned against a holy God, that you cannot sin and win. As I heard a preacher telling me when I was 14 years old, you cannot sin and win, and my heart was cut to the core, and I couldn't help but to fall on my face and say, God, you're God, I'm sorry, forgive me. I'll give the rest of my life to you. I'm so sorry, forgive me of my sins. As a result of someone prophesying and bringing the word of the Lord, And so when we come together as a church, what is it we're all eagerly desiring to see show up among us? It's the speech that's intelligible that will lead us to be convicted of our sins, turn our faces to God, worship Him, fall on our face, and know that the presence of God is among us. And it's happening through His Word in the hearts of His people. And so the gift of tongues is a gift of the Spirit, and it's beautiful But in the context of the church, as you're going to find out, the gift of tongues has to be interpreted 
It has to get on the same plane as prophecy to where people can understand it and benefit from it. And Paul was helping them see that the way they were using it was more of a sign of not that there's something wrong with the gift, but more of a sign there was something wrong with their hearts and they were operating in a very selfish way. And he was helping them see that. One more thing and then we're going to be done. I want to help you understand this idea of pursuing love and eagerly desiring. Because here's the idea, we can all pursue love and attain it. We can't all pursue prophecy and attain it. God's not going to prophesy in a way where where it seems like God's speaking through someone all the time, the gift of prophecy being used in in a preaching type of way, but we can all eagerly desire it. What does that mean? It's like this. Imagine you build a computer. If you're into that, I'm into that. You build a computer. You have all these working components. Every single component is, is, is important to make the whole thing run. You, the last thing you do is you get the monitor set up. And you go and you, you hit the computer. And there's, all of us are standing around this computer. And our eyes should be where? Tell me. The screen. The monitor. Right? Because that's where the information comes that, that, that tells you stuff. That's what you see. But yet, all of our eyes are turned and looking onto the motherboard and looking at the, the little fan that's there above the heat sink, and we're all enamored with this moving fan. Something wrong with that? We're not all the fan, but all of our attention is eagerly longing to just stare at this fan. Something's wrong because the fan's not meant to be stared at. It's, it's not the thing that's meant to be, to be eagerly desired and for our attention to be put on. The screen is... And so when he says, eagerly desire to prophesy, not that everyone can, but if you're going to try to all do something, try to all do that over speaking in tongues. But then also this eagerly long desire with one accord, unity of mind, we agree that when we come together that the longing of our heart that we want to see manifested among us, all on the same page is when we see the word declared. That's it. And so we as some at church as your elders speak to you, not using this as an example to say, get it right, saying that our hearts are very much encouraged by where there is unity and love flowing through this church, where the gifts are being used for others. We go to this chapter to bring knowledge of how the Spirit operates and to say, keep going and let's keep improving and laying our lives down for one another, welling up with love, wanting to be used by God, not so we can tickle our fancy, not so we can get something out of it, but so we can be used by God in however way he sees fit to benefit one another in the context of the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you know my my struggle with this passage, just the length of it, but also the, the brothers and sisters in the world who may see something differently than the way I've even preached it, that we all love one another and are working together to take your word and try to understand it better. I pray that you'd make us all students of the word, that we Bereans, we'd study, we'd search, but we'd all be motivated by wanting our life to be a living sacrifice for your glory, and for the benefit of those around us. But we need you to take over the selfish flesh that we're constantly living in. To do that in us, we pray. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.